Welcome to Supporting the Spectrum, the Thompson Center's podcast series on all things autism. We aim to bring you the most up-to-date information on autism research, services, and supports. I'm Gina Randolph, faculty in the Special Education Department at the University of Missouri and part of the Training and Education Division at the Thompson Center. Today's episode is focused on social skills instruction for girls with autism. And with us to talk about this is Michelle Damp. Michelle is a speech-language pathologist here at the MU Thompson Center. She participates in interdisciplinary evaluations and provides speech-language intervention for patients with autism and other speech and language disorders. Michelle also leads social language groups, one of which specifically focuses on providing pivotal social skills instruction to adolescent girls on the spectrum. Michelle, before we dig into the social skills instruction conversation specifically, I did want to talk about the diagnostic rate of girls versus boys. Mm -hmm. The rate has held steady over the years, with only one in four individuals with autism diagnosis being girls. Can you talk a little bit about the theories on why that is? Yeah, absolutely. So the current statistic overall is one in four when you look at children diagnosed with autism. When you break it down into children diagnosed with autism who also have an intellectual disability, that statistic is closer to one in two individuals, where children with autism who do not have an intellectual disability, that statistic is closer to one in six. So with the social group, um, we pretty much focus on the girls with autism who do not have that intellectual disability, and so they may have received that later diagnosis. Um, One common theory is that girls, especially girls without that intellectual disability, they tend to mask their symptoms when they're at school or in social settings, um, more so than boys do. So if girls use masking or camouflaging during gold standard procedures such as the ADOS, then they may not receive an accurate autism diagnosis. Another idea is that girls in general are expected just you know, to be quieter and less assertive than boys. So if a girl appears shy or withdrawn, that may, not, that may be seen as acceptable, while a boy with similar behaviors may attract some negative attention. And then a third idea is that girls, their restricted interests may be more normative content areas, such as books, animals, or celebrities. So that masking that you talk about, the masking of symptoms, so essentially what you're saying is if there are certain traits or behaviors that that girls on the spectrum inherently have, they can be overlooked. They might not be seen by people who are kind of looking with an eye to say, hey, who are the kids out there that may or may not benefit from services? Correct, yes. And so I just want to kind of recap those points because they, they are such such good points to be considering, especially for those professionals who are out there in the schools or working in the field, and you have individuals kind of coming across your, your eye scope. So the first then was, I'm sorry, bring me back. One was on just that shyness, that kind of introverted behavior. Mm-hmm. So can you, talk, can you expand on that a little bit more of how that might be misinterpreted or what might really be going on there? Yeah, absolutely. So if a girl um, with autism in the school setting, a teacher may be less likely to voice concerns about her having possible autism or something because she's just less likely to have those meltdowns during the day. And what I found in talking to parents is that the girls with autism that mask or camouflage during their school day, they tend to have those more extreme behaviors happening at home later on. 
that makes sense. Hold it, hold it together all day and, and then kind of fall apart with those safe people in that safe space. Right. And the other thing you talked about then is, is the special areas of interest. Mm-hmm. And so just to give a little bit of background on that, when, when looking at the diagnostic criteria for autism, you know, there's really those two categories. There's that, that difference in, in social interaction, but there's also that presence of some restricted or repetitive pattern of behavior. And for some individuals, that comes out as really kind of restricted areas of interest are are one way that that's seen. So with girls, what you're saying is sometimes they have those areas, but why aren't they flagging exactly? So sometimes whenever we have our boys come in who have autism, they are lining up dinosaurs and telling you every single fact about dinosaurs or elevators or insects or whatever it is that their restricted interest area is. And those areas may seem a little bit odd if, if somebody's telling you all about elevators and the brands and, and what kind of buttons they have. But for girls, if they're telling you about the series of book that they're reading and they've read every single book in that series, that doesn't seem as odd, but the books may be their restricted area of interest. Or with the stuffed animals, they may have a huge number of stuffed animals in their room, but again, that doesn't seem just super odd to have that restricted interest, so it may be harder to just really pinpoint that area. Yeah, just hearing you say that, it it seems very obvious to me why that could so easily be overlooked and that you would really need to have that expert eye to understand, you know, where's that threshold marker at? What are we talking about here as an area of interest or or something that um, is more involved than that? So thinking about the group that you run, you have one specifically designed for girls with autism. So why just (laughs) girls in one room together? You know, this girls club. (laughs) Yeah. So that is a great question. And I wish you could have seen my very first social group that had boys and girls in it. And that alone would answer your question. (laughs) (laughs) The boys tended to interrupt and talk a lot, whereas the girls kind of held back and just weren't as involved in the group and the boys just kind of dominated. So after running a co-ed group, it became apparent to me that if I really wanted to target some of the skills with the girls that I really needed to separate them from the boys. And it's worked out really well to have a boys only group and a girls only group so that way we can hit on topics that they feel more comfortable talking about in just kind of a girls only setting. So we'll talk about, you know, what they've been doing on social media and what's safe to do on social media. They may talk very openly about puberty and when things start. And then we also have our self-advocates come in. And for the girls group, I have an older, well, a young adult with autism come in to talk to the girls about her experiences. And then same thing for the boys. So it just lends itself a little bit more to having those more open conversations. That makes sense, uh, you know, that safe space for conversations, especially with an adolescent group. I mean, that's a, that's a hard year to navigate challenges no matter who, who you are and what's going on. So thinking about some of those specific social challenges for girls with autism, what are some of the challenges that they face and, and do you attribute those? I mean, are those challenges specific to their autism diagnosis or is it, you know, these are challenges in general but things that we just need to talk about? Yeah, the challenges that I'm going to go through, they're not necessarily just specific to girls with autism, but if you think about that pre-adolescence and the adolescence mixed with autism, it's almost like they're having to do double duty on their challenges when compared to just a neurotypical girl going through those teen years. So um, yes, they're challenges for all girls, but they're even more of a challenge for girls with autism. So the challenges that they face and that we talk about, 
definitely with friendships and relationships. I mean, just that that whole dynamic really has to be explicitly taught. It's not just learned incidentally, like most girls get that. But once they're taught, then they're like, oh, okay, so that's the rule and that's how I do it. We also go over and learn self-perception and self-confidence, other challenges, puberty and hygiene and the importance of showers, the importance of brushing their teeth and wearing clean clothes. Um, We talk about social media and how to be safe and then just personal safety and within that personal safety, they have a challenge for advocating for themselves too. So we work on that. And then just mental health because girls with autism just tend to have a higher rate of anxiety and depression. And so it's just even more of a challenge with these girls. So you brought up some really good points there, not only about working on the friendship and relationships in general, but also that layer of mental health concerns that that's often present. Do you work on things specifically tied to that on like coping strategies or de-escalation strategies? Are those part of the social skills curriculum you use? Yes, we actually pull from um, a few different social curriculums, but we do talk a little bit about that anxiety and depression. We don't get, you know, really too far into it. We do provide a lot of support to their parents as far as, you know, if we see some issues, mental health issues with the girls that the parents may not already be aware of, then we'll provide some ideas on where to go for counseling or to get that cognitive behavioral therapy or a psychiatry visit at the Thompson Center. Um, So we'll provide them some resources and supports in that area. I love that that parent connection piece in there as well. I think sometimes um, those of us who are who are working directly with with families and, and other professionals, one of the challenges we face is helping people see that autism in and of itself is not wholly encompassing of some of the challenges that are there. And so there might be additional services or needs that can support. And so knowing that you're out there making those connections to counseling and Um, other resources is is wonderful. So that was a really nice segue into some of the topics that you cover. Can you go a little bit more into that and tell us what, you know, what are some other things that that you guys address in these groups? Yeah, so I just absolutely love my girls only social group. We have a lot of fun. We cover a lot of different topics. At the beginning of every session, um, so we have a 12-week session in the spring and a 12-week session in the fall and then an eight-week session in the summer. So at the beginning, each family is provided with a calendar and it outlines all of the topics that we're going to go over throughout that 12-week session and when our pizza parties are and our, you know, last day party and all of that good stuff. So the families know exactly which topic will be talked about which day. So if we're hitting on a harder topic, you know, they're aware of that ahead of time. So we go over like body language and gestures, which can be very difficult for girls with autism to understand and read somebody else's body language, but also try to figure out what they're communicating with their body language to somebody else. So they may be looking completely bored during a conversation that they may actually be interested in. So we go over that. We talk about personal space. Sometimes our girls get a little too close to each other, and sometimes they're a little bit too far away. So we address that. Um, We talk about sharing ideas and conversations. Problem solving is one of our big ones that we hit on for quite a while accepting changes in routine, health, we go over hygiene and fitness, and then again, that social media piece has become a real big piece in our lessons. That is a very comprehensive and very important list. So just thinking from a a teaching side of things, 
how do you teach these skills? Is there one methodology that you adhere to? Um, you said you were using multiple curriculums. How do you, how do you go about instruction? So we focus on evidence-based practices throughout all of our instruction. Um, there's so much to get into to answer this question. So first, we have to have that parent involvement or caregiver involvement piece, which really helps with the generalization of that topic to other settings. So the parents are provided a note after every single session that outlines what we did to learn that topic and how they can provide some supports to facilitate that success to the next level. When we do our lessons, we have a our first 30 minutes is devoted just to our lesson time. But during our lesson, it has to be fun. I typically have two speech-language pathology graduate students who help, and that's my number one thing to them. It has to be fun. If you think about your favorite lesson at school, whenever you were younger and in school, it was not when you were sitting there listening to your teacher lecture. It might have been doing a science experiment or a role play or watching a video or something along that line. So I really push that it has to be fun, incorporate lots of different senses, you know, we use a visual support every time and a 3D visual support. So if we're teaching how to handle your emotions, the student last time brought in a handle from a cabinet, and so we pass that around. And it really just helps to solidify the topic for all of our participants. And we might bring in a shoe if we're teaching about empathy, you know, walking in someone else's shoe. We use video self models during our, our time, so we might record a conversation that the girls are having with each other, and then pull one at a time aside and show it to them and say, what went really well during this? Okay, now what didn't go so great and what would you do different next time in your conversation? So those are really helpful because if I try to tell some of my girls in the group what they did that wasn't so great, they'll just say, no, I didn't. So the video models or video self models are, are really, really helpful. We also do um, role plays uh, to try to get our topic across, which can be a lot of fun. So that's our first 30 minutes is really teaching that topic. And then for the next 20 minutes, we do a cooperative activity. So the girls are doing some type of, typically it's a STEM activity or a recipe that we have them working in pairs and they're both wearing their masks while they're working in pairs. We do follow all you know, COVID safe guidelines. So they're working together to try to do a recipe or a STEM activity where they're just given the directions. So they have to ask each other questions. Um, and then we are there, me and the graduate students are there to provide some prompting if needed to help them to do those interactions, looking in the direction of their partner and all of that good stuff. And then our last part is just a snack time. During that time, we definitely sit more than six feet apart, but they're encouraged to have conversations with the whole group. At this point, I have four girls in the group, so they're just kind of spaced out, and we encourage them to ask questions of each other and just kind of help to facilitate those conversations. And then the other piece that I do to really try to teach some of these skills is having the self-advocates. That has just been amazing, watching the connections between some of the girls in the group and seeing what a woman with autism looks like later on in life and how successful she is so that they can see okay, I'm going to be okay. I can do this. That is really powerful. I love the model, and I, I love how much emphasis you have on rich interaction. I mean, we know that there is often that difference between um, skill acquisition and skill performance. So I know what to do. You know, you're, you're lecturing me about this. You're telling me about this. I've done a little worksheet about this. I can tell you back what to do. But then making that leap to really having meaningful practice and feedback and coaching um, to perform the skills is 
that's, that's really, I'm sure, where the heart of the instruction piece is at. So when we're thinking about these groups, can you, can you talk a little bit about who is eligible? There might be parents listening who are interested in having their daughters participate. Do they need to be patients at the Thompson Center? Is there an age range? Yeah, so we have lots of different girls who participate in our group. Um, the criteria is that right now it's between the ages of 9 and 13, or 10 to 13, somewhere right around there, so that we're kind of pre-adolescent before we get into the rough stuff, um, getting some of those skills taught ahead of time. And then also um, the girls do have to have a diagnosis of autism because we do talk about autism. And we talk about how it's a, it's a diagnosis, it's a label, but it doesn't define who you are. So we talk about you still have the same strengths and, and areas of need like you did before, so don't let that define who you are. And I feel like they really grasp that whenever we have our self-advocates come in and talk. Um, so girls between the ages of 9 and 13 who have a diagnosis of autism, you do not have to be a patient at the Thompson Center. Most of the time, the participants are doing really well in school academically. It's just that they need support with that social aspect of their education. And once they start to learn those social pieces, then they become, they, they learn that so that they can become more successful later on with employment, um, with independence, and all of that good stuff. Yeah, it's a wonderful connection to the future both with the self-advocate coming in and also your, your focal point. So hearing that eligibility piece, if a family is interested, can they reach out to you or is there another avenue that they go through in order to get their daughters enrolled? Yeah, so you can just call the Thompson Center and ask for Michelle Damp, or you can call my phone number. It is 573-884-5596. That goes directly to my office. Or you can contact me through email. It is D-A-M-P-F-M, DAMPFM, at Missouri.edu. Thank you. That is so helpful. Before we wrap up today, I do have one last question. I always want to make sure that that we end our podcast sessions on um, really giving something tangible to our listeners, some resource or piece of advice. So do you have any advice or go-to resources that you could share with parents and professionals who are working with girls? I do. So my first piece of advice would be for professionals in the school system. I just encourage you to take into consideration that although a student may be diagnosed with autism and may be doing well academically, um, teaching him or her the skills needed to be independent and employable, um, those skills may not be easily learned, incidentally, like some of the other students. So giving some of that direct teaching through their IEP or 504 would be really beneficial, even if they have A's and B's because even though the autism doesn't seem to be negatively impacting their academics, it's definitely having a negative impact on their autism. Um, and we want to see all of our kiddos you know, succeed. And um, the girls in the group, they all know their two goals are independence and employability. We talk about it at least once a week. So they're able to say, you know, those are my goals. That's what I'm working toward. And then for parents, I recommend there's toolkits about girls and puberty on the Autism Speaks website. Also, there's a book um, written by Haley Moss. It's called Middle School, The Stuff Nobody Tells You About, and it's a wonderful book for girls to read. Haley Moss actually has autism. She is now a lawyer in Florida and doing really well. She's a self-advocate 
So you can see some of her YouTube videos that are really good too. And then another book that's great for parents is called Girls Growing Up on the Autism Spectrum. And it gives moms and dads and caregivers some really good advice for raising girls with autism. So. Well, you were ready for that question. That is awesome. <laughs> Those are wonderful resources. Thank you so much. Yes, thanks for having me. Before we wrap up today, we did want to let you know that registration for our 16th Annual Autism Conference is live. This year, the conference will be held on October 14th and 15th in St. Louis, Missouri. We have some world-class speakers who will be sharing the latest research and best practice methods on a variety of topics, including new trends in early intervention, diversity and inclusion, genome sequencing, ethical decision-making, and so much more. The conference is geared to clinical providers, educators, and applied behavior analysts. There's also a parent-focused conference day, too. Though we're scheduled to meet in person, and we're excited to see everyone there, the health and safety of all attendees and speakers is our number one priority. Should the situation with COVID not improve or get worse, the conference will be moved online. For more information about the conference, including how to register, go to tcautismconf.com. That's T-C-A-U-T-I-S-M-C-O-N-F.com. Mm -hmm.